Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. As we go back and forth between Colossians and John, turn to John 2.18. Last time we looked at John 2.12-17. And here in chapter 2 from verses 12 through 25, we find three incidents that happen. And they are not unplanned. In fact, they are three divinely orchestrated incidents. They really are confrontations. The first one we looked at last time was in the temple. When Jesus got to Jerusalem on the Passover and he confronted what he saw, the desecration of his father's house, turning it into a place of business. You remember, he made a whip out of some little cords. And he threw everybody out of the temple, including all the animals, the big old oxen, and all the rest. And as I taught you, this was a very powerful expression of the deity, the godhood, of Jesus Christ, because in any normal situation, if you remember back as we studied, that temple courtyard was packed with tens of thousands of people. And in any normal situation, as soon as Jesus got started turning over the tables, there would have been resistance from any of the 300 temple police. Nobody in the crowd of tens of thousands of people, again, would have been happy with what he was doing because they were messing up the traditional Passover. I mean, this is just how things went at Passover. and They gotten used to it. And if there would have been any reaction by the crowd to what Jesus was doing and any kind of conflict would have started breaking out. You remember the Romans who were right next door to the temple, high atop Fort Antonia watching, would have swooped down immediately to put down any kind of disturbance that Jesus may have started. And yet, and yet, with all of those forces, arrayed against one man with a little braided cord of ropes, there was absolutely no resistance. He evacuated the temple. Tens of thousands of people from the Greek in an orderly fashion, along with the animals, orderly evacuated the temple courtyard, which demonstrates, of course, 
his divine power and is the first indication of his deity that we're going to look at in this little set of three here in this section of Scripture. The second one comes in verses 18 to 22, actually 25, that we're going to look at today. When Jesus is next confronted by the Jewish leaders. And then there's going to be a third confrontation with those who believed in him. In each confrontation, though, there is a demonstration of his deity on display, which, which if you remember, which that's what John is constantly trying to demonstrate to us in the writing of this gospel, that Jesus is no mere man. He's not just a great prophet or a great religious leader, that he is the God-man. We're fixing to see his divine knowledge on display. As, as R.C. likes to say, touching his divine nature. Because you see, you have to understand, Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. Truly 100% God, truly 100% man. As the old timers here know, I quote Thomas Watson, that's heavenly arithmetic. You can't, you can't figure that out with, with earthly math. It just is because he is. And touching his divine nature, he knows the future of his own life perfectly. And we see throughout Scripture in his humanity, there were times that he veiled things from himself purposely. Like, I don't know the hour or the day, only the Father knows. But there were other times that he did not. And we're going to see some of that today. He knows the future actions and the behaviors of people who don't even know what they're going to do yet and aren't even yet thinking about it or are motivated to do it. He knows the mind of every person. He knows the thought in every person's mind. He knew it then. He knows it all now. The divine sovereignty of Jesus is on display in this text. He has authority over the temple, though they don't understand that. He has authority over all religion. He has authority over worship. He has authority over life and over death and over all human lives and destiny. And all of that is going to be demonstrated in this brief little section of scripture. Don't you love the word of God? It says so much with so few words. Now, in this first confrontation, the deity of Jesus is on display in that he demonstrates the ability to do something that no normal man could ever do. But as we come to these texts, these next two, it, it, it's not so much his power that's going to be on display as his omniscience is on display. And that's a big $5 theological word that's pretty easy to understand when you know the definition. When I use the word omniscience, that means he knows everything. 
There's nothing that he doesn't know. Science is for knowledge and omni means everything. Omniscience. He has all-inclusive knowledge. That's what the word means. Jesus knows everything there is to know. He knows what people can know, and he knows what people can't know. He knows what people discover, and he knew it without discovering it. He knows the future. He knows the present. He knows the past all perfectly. He knows everything that's visible, and he knows everything that's invisible. And there's a lot out there that's invisible to our eyes right this moment. Only God knows everything like that. Only God knows every thought, every word spoken, every action, and the collective effect of all thoughts, all words, and all actions. Scripture says only God knows the intent of the heart. And God will judge every man when all motives and all intentions of the heart are made manifest. Because he knows them all. In fact, God not only knows everything there is to know, he controls everything there is to control. That's his sovereignty. He is in charge of everything. There is nothing that exists, as we said earlier, that is outside of his control. Did you know something? God can't learn anything. Nobody ever teaches God anything. He has no knowledge to ever gain and he never loses any knowledge. His presence and his power control everything exactly the way they need to be controlled to bring about his purpose and his glory because that's the goal of everything. His glory. Listen to A.W. Tozer. He wrote the following in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. I recommend you read it. He says, God knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly. And with the fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. God knows all, causes all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, Every unuttered secret, all thrones, all dominions, all personalities, all things visible, all things invisible in heaven and in earth. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent and self-existent knowledge. He is self-contained and self-contained knowledge and knows what no creature can ever know. He knows himself perfectly. And only the infinite can have infinite knowledge of himself. This is God. End quote. 
I was reminded this week, he doesn't owe us anything. He owes you absolutely nothing. You got up this morning and ate a good breakfast. He didn't owe that to you whatsoever. The fact remains that there's only one thing he owes us, and that's his wrath. That's the only thing we deserve from God is his wrath. Let me tell you something. The Hamas leaders, they don't live in Gaza. They live in Turkey in penthouse villas far away from the problem. And guess what? They got up this morning under his common grace and they ate a good breakfast. You think he owed them that? He allowed that. And if they don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they're going to they're gonna reach an end in hell that their minds can't even imagine. They're going to pay for every atrocity that they've ever committed in their lives in God's timing. Psalm 139, 1 to 6 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And I love this last part. Make sure you get it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, David said. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. We can't, we just barely can grasp the surface of it. Now, Jesus here in our text today, again, is going to do something no man can do. He's going to tell the future perfectly. Anybody who claims to be God has to be able to tell the future. And that's exactly what he does. And Jesus here is not only going to tell his own future, he's also going to tell the future of those who don't know their own future. Look with me at verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what signs do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, you have to understand, we have to go back to last time, what Jesus just did, cleansing out the temple. They were furious with him. They were outraged that he had cleansed out the temple. Who do you think you are? Was their attitude. That's the question. You've got to prove to us that you have the authority to do what you just did. Now, they know that he's claiming to be God because he used that phrase, my father's house. And let me tell you something. No first century Jew would have ever uttered that out of their mouths. And of course, John the Baptist had already declared to much of Judea that he was the Lamb of God. So for sure, the word had been circulating about him by the time we get to this event in the temple courtyard. So now they want a sign. If you're going to say God is your father and you're the son of God later on, making yourself equal with God, and that's why they wanted to kill him, then give us some sign to indicate that and, and, and that you have valid authority for doing this. Well, notice verse 18. 
It starts out with that term, the Jews. Now you remember, I told you before, when you see that term in the gospel of John, that is a term that John always uses to speak of the enemies of Jesus. This is always referring to the religious leaders in Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, who were always attacking Jesus. And remember also, Jesus shows up here to the temple. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin. So from the Jewish leadership perspective, he doesn't have any rights of authority in the temple, courtyard or otherwise. That belonged to the priesthood and the Sanhedrin only. Do you realize Jesus had no role in religion in Israel? He was not an official anything. He had no right from their perspective to do anything in the temple granted to him by any powers in Israel. So this is an utter outrage and blasphemy to them. So understand where they're coming from. Now, from Jesus' side, he believes they have desecrated the Father's temple, and he has believed that rightly. They believe Jesus, as a man with no authority, has desecrated their temple. Notice, too, there's no repentance on their part. There's no bowing down saying, you're right. We really have desecrated this place with all the money changing and all the selling and all the, this is just an extortion over here. We need to repent. Did they say that? They don't really have any interest in that because they really don't have any interest in the true God. They love money. They love themselves. And Jesus said they made people into sons of hell. He told them that directly. You need to understand that today's nation of Israel is not the same of the people of God in, in, in the Old Testament. The only similarity there is with the people of Israel today, and we've gotten confused in evangelical about this, uh, the, the only similarity with the people in Israel today is their ethnicity. They're ethnically Jews. The Jews' rejection of Messiah and the ushering in of the new covenant changed everything for the Jews and Judaism. The true children of Abraham today are those who place their saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that makes up ethnic Jews and Gentiles. Now, that's what God meant it for it to be. Now, I happen to believe in Romans 11, we're, we're going to see some kind of uh, revival of ethnic Jews that are going to come together and believe in Christ, but that's not happening right now. If you look at the statistics, the majority of the people uh, make up Israel are secular. Many of them are atheists. We talked about Wednesday night, uh, Ben Shapiro, and I told you to go look at Ben Shapiro's podcast, and uh, he's got... Really strong. I mean, he's, he's an Orthodox Jew. He's got some strong information and contacts in Israel about what's really going on over there. 
And he really makes some very strong points. And I listened to him. He's a conservative, but I want you to hear what he said. That's what he said about Jesus. Jesus was just another Jew who tried to lead a revolt and was killed for his troubles. It's Ben Shapiro. I believe like most Jews that Jesus was not a prophet, performed no miracles, and was not raised from the dead. Quote, unquote. Heard it on video myself on Joe Rogan's show. He's a Jew! Why would he believe in Jesus? He's an Orthodox Jew. You need to understand. Okay? And these Jews of this day, they were rejecting Jesus' life just like they reject him today. They demand that Jesus give them some sign so that they can validate his right to do this. Now, he had been doing miracles already. Look, skip down to verse 23. It says, now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Well, why are they asking for a sign in verse 18? He'd already been doing them. And you know they knew about it. Well, let me tell you, what they wanted was more than what he was doing. And what he was doing, of course, was more than enough because they were all jaw-dropping, unexplainable in human terms miracles. I mean, when Jesus healed people, he cast out demons. You know what they saw? They reasoned this in their minds. Well, that's just earthly signs. And they felt like they could kind of control the news of those kinds of miracles. What they were looking for was a sign from heaven. I mean, they wanted astronomical signs. I mean, they wanted the big show to happen in the sky some kind of way. Look at Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. They wanted some big deal to pop off in the sky that everybody could see. Let me tell you, unbelief rejects signs that it chooses to reject. As the crucifixion proves, after Jesus had done jaw-dropping miracles for over three years, they still put him on a cross, rejected him, and murdered him. He raised a man from the dead that they knew were dead, and they still put him on a cross and murdered him. They wanted to hold out their trump card, no pun intended. Sorry. And say, well, he didn't do anything He didn't do anything heavenly. So he says, okay, all right, I give you a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. This is best understood as a statement of future fact. He's not commanding them to destroy him. He's making a statement of future fact. Since you will destroy this, I will raise it up. That's the first indication from John in the record that he knows the future of what's going to happen. And this is at the start of his ministry. I want you to realize they don't even yet know themselves that they're going to plan to kill him. All of this hadn't even really begun to take shape in their hearts and minds just yet. 
They're just trying to figure out who is this guy. But Jesus knows it all perfectly. Every future thought, every future intention, and every one of them he had to have. Oh my goodness, he had to have divine constraint. Every time they circled around him and tried to tell him, he didn't know what he was talking about. The God-man being told, you don't know what you're talking about. He knows he will rise from dead on the third day. And guess what? That will be a heavenly sign. That validates his claim to be the son of God because he will die and he will be undeniably dead. And they know that verified by the Romans breaking his legs and spearing his side and blood and water comes out. And all of them knew that that means dead. And when the temple was empty, what did they do? They tried to bribe the Romans because they knew the disciples didn't steal the body. He's a dead man who is buried in the grave and then the sign from heaven is he comes back, shows himself alive over 500 at one time on a hill in Galilee. Not only that, there's ample testimony to angels being at the tomb. So Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's going to be a deferred sign. I will raise him. It simply means, I will raise myself from the dead. And again, who really can do that kind of thing? Only God. Jesus has to be God. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, that's the only three choices C.S. Lewis gives us. And that's the only three choices there are. Only God can do this. No so matter what, you can't escape the fact that over and over and over again, both directly and indirectly, you have clear evidence that Jesus claimed to be God in the Bible and either you believe he is or he is not. And there's no wiggle room. And there's huge ramifications for which side of the fence you're on. Jesus said on more than one occasion, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. When Jesus was telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man said, send back Lazarus from the dead to my brother so he can tell him not to come to this place. Jesus said, they don't believe Moses and the prophets. They won't believe though someone is raised from the dead. What's the point? An evil and adulterous generation is not satisfied with Scripture. Not satisfied with sola scriptura. Not satisfied with the sufficiency of Scripture alone. They won't sign. That's why all these phony, fake signs and wonders ministries of the day provide no real truth for the people, no real ministry, no real gospel message that brings salvation. Faith comes by hearing and the hearing of the word of God concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So get them phony signs out of here. We don't need them. And guess what? If you'll not accept the word of God by itself, signs won't do it, didn't do it then and won't do it now. 
Now, let me tell you, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, that, that, that statement right there, it spread like wildfire across Jerusalem. In, in today's world, it would have gone viral. I mean, and Twitter would have been blowing up, okay, from that statement. And let me tell you the reason why I know that. Three years later, three years later when Jesus goes to his trial and they're trying to find a way to convict him, Mark 14, look at it, in verses 56 to 58 says this, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Hmm, imagine that. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will build another made with hands. Now, did he say that? No, that is not what he said. But it was in the minds of the people who could be used as a false witness a serious misrepresentation. And they remembered it in this very inaccurate way. Even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, verses 39 to 40, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Save yourself. So what I'm trying to get you to understand is that those words that day went viral in Israel. Three years later, they're still around. Everybody knew about them. But of course, they didn't understand what he meant by what he said. But they also misrepresented what he said. First of all, he never said, I will destroy it. Basically, he said, you're going to destroy it. Look next in verse 20. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Oh, they were so blind. There were many things that he said that they didn't understand, like we're going to see with Nicodemus in Chapter 3, when Jesus tells him he has to be born again. Now, let me give you a quick bit of uh, background on the temple. It had been 46 years at this time that it had been under construction. Josephus confirms that for us. This is not the temple of Solomon. That temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And then when the Jews came back from the captivity after 70 years of captivity, They rebuilt the temple and they completed it in 519 B.C. Now, since then, it had been a long time that the temple had been in disarray and Herod shows up 500 years later and he says, man, this thing is in bad shape. I want to make something out of it. So he started this massive renovation project, if you will, kind of a reconstruction project of what was left of that old temple that had been completed in 519 B.C. And he had been doing it for 46 years. I mean, they didn't have skill saws and stuff back then, so you can understand. And it was very expensive. One record says they used 18,000 workers over this time period. And by the way, 
43 years after this encounter that Jesus had with the, with the religious leaders, when the temple and Jerusalem were totally, completely destroyed to the ground by the Roman army, it still wasn't finished. They never did finish it. And then it got destroyed and it's been destroyed until this day. So they're looking at Jesus and they're thinking, this must be some kind of joke. You, you, you must not be right in the head. This thing is 46 years into the rebuilding process and you're going to destroy it and put it back up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And isn't it interesting that he didn't explain that to them? You find that interesting? Why? Because remember, he's hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. He wanted his disciples to understand that. He wanted you and me to understand that because this is evidence of his deity as he predicts details of the future. But he never said anything to them about it by way of explanation. Verse 22. John says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed what? The scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And scripture here, of course, means all the scripture from the Old Testament about the Messiah, including his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So Jesus gave a sign, but not a sign to an evil and adulterous generation. It wouldn't have mattered what he did, folks. He did rise from the dead, and they knew it. They still didn't believe. If they wouldn't believe the scripture, then he wouldn't be giving them a heavenly sign, even this resurrection from the dead. So the, the Lord's divine nature is revealed here in this passage. Only God knows the future. Read Matthew 16, 17, and 19. He gives more details to his disciples about the fact of, that he would be killed, that he would be buried, and that he would be ride, rose again from the dead. He gives them the details. He predicts it perfectly. Now, as we close, let me make a few comments. Verses 23-25. Touching his divine nature. Jesus not only knows the big events in the future that will happen visibly, he also knows the secrets of men's hearts. He knows the invisible world of human thought. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing signs which he was doing. So he stays in Jerusalem for the Passover and he's performing miracles. You remember John says later that he did so many things, all the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that he did. Notice how it says many believe in his name. And boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that's the desired outcome, isn't it? People believing. Modern day evangelicals would be counting hands and heads and ramping up the numbers report right here at this point. 
Look at how many decisions of believing in Jesus we got. But there's some very interesting wording that's going on here in verse 23 and 24. Many believe in his name, observing the signs which he was doing, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Now, the many believed in verse 23 is the Greek verb pastuo, which means to believe. Many believed in his name, in his name as Messiah in who he claimed to be. But in verse 24, where it says Jesus was not entrusting, it's the same word, pastuo, believing. So they were believing in Jesus. But Jesus was not believing in them. He had no faith in their faith. He had no trust in their trust. He didn't believe in their believing. And right here, listen good, at the very outset of the Gospel of John, we are introduced to a very important issue that covers all of redemptive History, the presence of a false, superficial, intellectual faith that doesn't save anybody, that just believes in the facts, according to Jesus, without surrendering to him in true saving faith. Let me tell you, it's a reality. It has to be recognized. Churches all over the land don't want to talk about this, but we got to deal with it. Because James says the devils believe and they tremble. They believe intellectually. Many in that day, Jesus said, will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do many wonderful things in, in your name? Didn't we? And he will say to them, Depart from me, you doers of iniquity, for I never knew you. I told Jehovah Witnesses on my couch the other day when they came to my home, it's not so much important as you know Jesus as that Jesus knows you. False faith is a staggering reality. And what's sad is in many places, what passes for preaching is not the preaching of the gospel. And yet decisions are still made in response to that kind of preaching that could never save anybody. And they pronounce them saved. And they are assured that their decision was not based but their decision was not based on the true gospel. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. And then next, for he knew all men. That means on the inside, verse 25. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew 
what was in man. Let me tell you something. Nobody ever needed to tell Jesus anything about anybody, ever. Okay? In 1 John 3, 20, it says, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. What that means is God knows what our own hearts don't even know. What we don't even know about ourselves, he knows perfectly. He reads us all like a book to perfection. So, how about we end up with some application? I think this is going to help you. A story from Peter. You long-time people, you're going to know this one, but it's always great to hear it again. You remember when Peter was confronted by Jesus? Because he didn't want to do what the Lord told him to do. And so what did old Peter do? He went back to fishing. Jesus told him, look here, just go to Galilee and I want you to just wait for me there until I get there. Obviously, some instructions from ministry were coming. Just wait. But Peter went back to his boat and his nets and his old profession. And the principle in the scene was, if you love me, do what I say. If you love me, keep my commandments. So after breakfast, Jesus confronts Peter there in John 21, 15. One of these years we'll get there. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you love me more than these things that you've gone back to, these nets, these boats, this fishing business that you've had? What does Peter say? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs, verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep, verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what is Peter basing his testimony on? The omniscience of Jesus Christ. He calls on omniscience because like us he knows his obedience and his faithfulness is shaky he couldn't go there with Jesus in his answer and so all he can do is say Lord you know all things and that means you know that I love you and look next in verse 17 Jesus said to him in my sheep. I do know, Peter, that you love me. Christian, isn't that comforting for you? He knows all things. He knows that you love him. Because Peter, just like us, had times of disobedience, but that doesn't cancel out true love for Jesus 
That's just evidence of our flesh battling condition. So Jesus knew the secrets of the heart of Peter. Just like he knows ours. But that's not all. Look next. Verses 18 and 19. Where Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus not only knew Peter's heart, he knew Peter's Future, when he said you will stretch out your hands, he's referring to crucifixion. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified by his request upside down, by his request so that it wouldn't be the same as with Jesus. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And how do we know the meaning with that? He signified by what kind of death by which he would glorify God. That's how we know what Jesus meant. So Jesus knows Peter's heart and he knows Peter's future. That's omniscience. What about you this morning? Can you give the frustrated confession of Peter? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know it. And what about our future? Man, look at what's going on in the country. Look what's going on in the world. What about our future? A future that though suffering may come to us all one day in ways we may have never imagined would happen here in this land, through it all, no matter what. We're Christians. We will glorify God in our suffering. No matter what comes, those things bring comfort to us. You know why? Because they give us evidence that our faith is real and genuine. And folks, there's no better comfort in this world than that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. What a tremendous, all-sufficient, infallible, inerrant gospel of John we have. Oh, there's no book like it because it gives us Jesus up close and personal. King Jesus, we thank you for it. Lord. We thank you for what we've learned. I pray you apply it to our hearts and our minds that we might go forth from this place to serve you and bring you glory with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.